So, Bob, I have some patron emails that we can read, and we will answer them. What do you say, Bob? I say yes, and you're wearing your Dungeons & Dragons t-shirt. <laughs> Thanks, oh, so. you're wearing one of your Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, my God. Okay, so that requires me to tell that stupid story, <laughs> and then we'll get to the patron emails. So, Bob and I are going for a walk in a park in Seattle, and uh, we happen upon some other strangers uh, on on the path, and... Uh, this guy turns to me and he's like, oh, I like your shirt. And I had just bought four Dungeons & Dragons shirts because I I bought one and then I bought three more because I just really like the material and I like Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. And so so we come around the corner and the guy's like, oh, I like your shirt. And I I said, thanks, I have four. You did. And that's all. And that's all I said. And we just yeah. walked by. Uh-huh. And um, yeah. <laughs> all right. This it's first... so cute. <laughs> hey, hey, uh, sir. I like your shirt. Thank yeah. you. I have four of them. I know. It's what a kid would say, right? <laughs> Do you want to look at my new sneakers? <laughs> um, okay. So Rebecca from Sweden. She says, wow. "My partner's ex." is emotionally abusive and I'm worried about my partner. How do you protect yourself from psychological abuse, like from my partner's ex? How do you protect yourself from passive-aggressive behavior, minimizing, shaming, and gaslighting? How do you protect yourself when you must have contact with this person because you have children with them? How do you protect yourself when nobody is ever going to believe you because you're a man and the abuser is a likable woman. Mm. How do you deal with an ex that doesn't understand that her behavior is toxic? My couples therapist told me that I can't change their toxic communication and that I have to stop being being codependent. But what? it's hard standing as an outsider, yet insider, and see him suffer. Bob, right. what do you think? You know, I think... I'm listening to this and all these really important questions and I feel my heart start to race and a sense of pressure come upon me like, oh, how are we going to help Rebecca? What are we going to do, right? And this has been happening to me, well, for 30 years because I've been doing this kind of work for that long. But but lately when this happens to me, when I get this feeling, I usually sort of just, oh, this is it. This is a moment, right? And I shift and I'm shifting right now, Rebecca, and I'm thinking, I don't know how to answer these questions, but what I do know is how to pay attention to you. And what you're saying is you're scared. You're scared about getting hurt. You're scared about your partner getting hurt. And of course you are. Who wouldn't be? And is it okay if we pay attention to that? There probably aren't any easy answers about how to protect yourself from somebody who's got power and who um, you're stuck with. And, you know, and I don't mean to be glib about it, but there probably is. There probably isn't a way to do that. That's, you know, foolproof. And here you are, you're suffering in your marriage, you're scared. And um, I'm not in love with the label of codependent for this. I sort of feel like this would be the normal reaction. And what are we in marriage? And if, if it's the case in couple counseling, what are we doing to support you? What are we doing to make room for your fear? Do Is there room for your fear? Or do you feel like you have to kind of keep it to yourself because your husband's the one who's on the chopping block because it's his ex? Because actually this impacts you too. Do you want your marriage to be a source of comfort and support to you in your fear and not just be perhaps about your partner's, oh, I said marriage. I don't know if you're married, your relationship 
Um, do you want it to be a source of comfort and support to you too? Do you want that? Would you right. feel selfish for it? Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. I like that. The, Thanks. uh, point here that I hadn't thought of was when you present these kinds of questions, Rebecca, there's this compulsion from me and from a lot of people I'm guessing that are around you to problem solve yep. and to figure out the answer to the question. I can still feel my heart rates up. Yeah, because it sounds really difficult it's and awful. upsetting. Mm-hmm. And the feature here that might be happening that Bob's picking up on is that your partner is in the middle of it and he's mm-hmm. trying to deal with it. Maybe he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Your partner's ex isn't going to listen to your feelings. And it sounds like your couple's therapist isn't listening to your feelings. I mean, at least your perception of your couple's therapist is that you have to accept you can't change it and that you have to stop being codependent. And I just want to tell all the clinicians out there, stop using the term codependent wrong. Mm -hmm. Codependent is a is a alcoholic or a addict term. Mm-hmm. You have a dependent person, meaning they're dependent on alcohol or cocaine, mm-hmm. and you have the co-dependent, as in a co-pilot. You often, when you have a, in a family in particular, someone who is chronically drinking, there is often what we call the co-dependent or the co-pilot in the dependency that plays their part to uphold the family dependency on that person being dependent on alcohol. Now, uh, that is a far cry from what codependent is being used for in society, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is dependent. That's or or overly involved or you know, mm-hmm. overly involved in other people's lives or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or too dependent. That's usually what people are meaning. And mm-hmm. I think for whatever reason, it just became in the lexicon of the common person, but that doesn't mean that as clinicians, we go along with that. For example, we clinicians understand that the common terms of narcissism and gaslighting are dubious terms in society right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we don't just go with the layperson narrative when it comes to these words. Right. So uh, please, for the love of God, do not use codependent wrong. Just use overly dependent um, or, you know, like a, essentially when people are being accused of this, it's like um, you're not, uh, you don't have good boundaries, essentially, is what they're being accused of. Um, you are too dependent on other people to define who you are. You're too involved in other people's lives. You don't have enough independence, you know? And so we, you could say that's dependent, but I don't know. I don't know if we have a, a, a good other word for what I think conceptually people are referring to when they're saying codependent anyway. So there's that. Um, but yeah, it's so uh, what Bob is getting back to what Bob was saying is that mm-hmm. you, Rebecca, You know, your partner isn't necessarily listening to you because he's going through his own troubles. Other people are trying to solve your problem. And really, maybe the central feature here that you're communicating to us that Bob is picking up on is that no one is there to support you and that you don't feel like your feelings are being felt, you know, uh, or heard. 
you're worried about your partner. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as Bob is saying, this definitely affects you emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, vicariously, and, and affects your life for sure. And so hopefully you have someone to talk to. And if your couple's therapist is shutting down, you know, shutting you down, then that, that's too bad. It's worth talking to the couple counselor about because you've got to feel safe in there. Yeah. Um, now, maybe the couple's counselor is just like, look, we can't do anything about that because that other person isn't here. And mm-hmm. so that's a job for another clinician. Um, you need a, a family therapist to help you, the three of you, or something like that. And, um, you know. Well, it, how do you it, feel about that, if that's the case? I don't love that either. Well, so... Uh, so here, there's a, who knows, obviously, just well, based on this right. event. We're just spitballing here because we don't really know. Right. But I could see a number of possibilities. I could see one possibility where this couple of therapists doesn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of other possibilities like the, uh, you know, the couple sits down and they're working on their issues, their, you know, their own intimacy, their own conflict or something. Mm-hmm. And then this thing comes up where uh, Rebecca is just like, well, there's another thing here is that my partner is being abused by his ex-wife and he doesn't stand up to her enough. He he needs to draw boundaries with oh, her. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because and I, I, Rebecca didn't say she's doing this. No, but, no, you're just spitballing. Yeah. Got it. And Rebecca, you know, the Rebecca's telling her, partner is just like you know we got to work on that we got to work on and the partner he's just like well you know we share kids together and we have to get along and you know she's always just kind of like that and yeah it would, it's easy to say draw boundaries mm-hmm. but i've tried that before and and maybe he has his own shame issues that you know predate actually him even meeting his his ex-wife mm-hmm. uh he worries about his kids. Maybe he still has some feelings for her. Mm-hmm. Who knows? And mm, right. the and so he in therapy is just like eh, I don't know if I really want to talk about that. I mm-hmm. feel like it's just kind of it's just kind of my issue or something. And and I'd like to work on these other you know. And I could see the therapist being like, okay, well, so it sounds like he doesn't want to work on this. So and then and then say. Rebecca keeps hammering on it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And eventually the couple's therapist is just like, look, we've got to get off of this and you are overly focused on it and you're not focusing on yourself, which is a mm-hmm. codependent thing to do. Now, again, I have no idea, but yeah, you know, we don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Anyway, there could be, there's all sorts of possibilities, but yeah. I have to say that this is absolutely grist for the mill in a couple's therapy a situation that, that I would work on. Oh, hell yeah. Um, so at the very least, what Bob is saying of just like, how does that feel to you, Rebecca? Right on. What's going on? Um, what is that like to have that? Let's uh, let's be on the same team here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you two. How, how are you both doing? Let's oh, not I worry. I like that. Yeah. Let's be on the same team here. Yeah, this is a frequent uh-huh. mantra that I either think or um, promote, which is, Usually the things that people are suffering from, if you word it differently, and this is a family therapy thing and a narrative therapy thing, then it can switch from conflict between the two to both people being on the same team facing a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why fight about something that they both are suffering from? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a sad thing that both of them have to deal with. 
and it often sadly will result in fighting about it. So it's a matter of orientation of like, how are we oriented towards this problem? Are we oriented against each other or are we oriented together against the problem? Anyway. So Rebecca, here's my advice because you're asking for advice is you have to go on a campaign. You are potentially, and the way to look at it is you being involved with your partner you're also involved with your partner's ex and your partner's kids and everything that that entails. And so you cannot separate those things out as you've realized, Rebecca. So you go on a campaign of like, okay, how, how do I want this to look eventually given the factors here, given the fact that this ex-wife is, you know, crazy town, you know, however word you want to put to it. Um, what, What's the realistic best case scenario in the future? And usually what that looks like is you you play nice with each other and you avoid landmines with each other. You you try not to get into, you know, super conflictual things. You try to accommodate uh, up front. Uh, but another fact, so those things, but also another factor, another uh, campaign element. I don't know if this would work, Rebecca, but when I think about my own personal life, this often works, mm-hmm. which is like, I think about someone in my life who has been, has been around for a long, long time and had been on and off emotionally abusive to me. And what I did with him was I, and this is, you know, this goes back years and years but the thing that I successfully did was essentially try to extract myself from the day-to-day life of this person and that drastically decreased my victimization Uh, because I find that there are there's a number of options available to us um, when we interface with some people like this. Now, if we're a therapist, then it's a whole other ball game, right? But as just, you know, peer-to-peer, it's like, what do you do? Well, I find that uh, my initial knee-jerk reaction or my sort of instinct is to try to heal the situation. I, you know, I try to explain myself. I try to like, hey, let's work on this. You know, that thing that happened last week, I didn't like that. Let's talk about it. Let's work it out. Well, with people who have sufficient issues and they're unaware of it and they're not in therapy, this might just further entwine you. And although maybe that incident will go okay, the emotional abuse is just around the corner. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a cycle that happens. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you could try to fix it. You can try to, you know, you know tinker with the situation so there's that of trying to appease, which I found never work with these kinds of people. The next thing is, is like, okay, you got to drop boundaries, but that's more communication, which is more entwinement, you know, entanglement. Oh, interesting. Because now you're, now you're in their head mm-hmm. and they're angry at you all day long and they're thinking about you. And so sometimes the only way to deal with this, I found personally, is to... Be nice, but also don't be an attractive target for their, I don't know what to call it, uh, emotional abuse. If you, do, if you don't respond and you're not around, 
and you're not interesting, then you know you're not likely to get targeted. But that's hard to do, right? It's, it is. So, the, and, the, impossible to do completely, right? And that leads me to the next thing that I talk with a lot of people about, which is radical acceptance. Mm. It's like, look, you just have to accept that there's a possibility that this is your life now. If it, if Rebecca, this other person, truly is as problematic as you're portraying them, there might not be any way out of it. So sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to be victimized occasionally, and I have to brace myself for that and not fight against that reality. You know what I mean, Bob? Yeah, it's the anticipation of the thing is often worse than the actual thing itself. If I'm thinking I've got to create a situation where I don't get abused anymore and that just isn't on the menu, then accepting, which doesn't mean approving of or liking or thinking it's okay or standing in the road of the bus when it's coming. If I can get out of the road, it should get out of the road. But it means this hurts and that's part of what my reality is right now because I choose this partner and this is the situation, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a, D- been- is there a DBT thing like this? Yeah, it's called... Radical acceptance. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. You, you teach a module on radical acceptance. Yeah. And we always say the same thing. Acceptance is a thing that you can't make happen. You can't make yourself accept something. And so it's a practice. It's turning and facing, yes, this is my life. Yep, this is my life. And turning again and again and again towards it. And if you've ever quit smoking, you know all about this because you have to turn again and again and again to quit it. It's like breaking any habit. You have to turn again and again and again to, you know, whatever the the new habit is that you want to groove. That's a piece of it. And I think people have this misguided conception of acceptance as being at peace with. I think acceptance is being at peace with not being at peace. Mm. Because that is going to hurt. Whatever that thing is with the partner's ex, there's just no getting out of it. Right. So if I try to fight off that it's going to hurt and expect to live in a universe where I can, you know, float on a fluffy cloud like the Buddha, the supposed Buddha, I I think the people's conception of Buddhism and enlightenment is um, misguided as well. Right. The Buddha is not a person who is free of pain. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, come on, man. It's life. Yeah. Isn't that the first noble truth? All life is dissatisfying. Which, by the way, maybe a translation they say in english all life the first noble truth is all life is suffering but i read somewhere that it's a mistranslation from sanskrit that actually what the buddha said is all life is dissatisfying Mm. not not suffering i don't know if it's true or not but i i've been chewing on that for a couple years but i really like that is that radical acceptance is not it's not uh well how'd you say it (laughs) it's not free of pain it's it's acceptance of not being no what oh being look? it's being at peace with not being at peace being at peace with not being at peace that's beautiful yeah. yeah all right another upper tier anonymous patron wrote in and asked i really want to be in therapy but i have attachment issues i saw one therapist but she and i didn't mesh well it upsets me that in order to have my emotional attachment needs met i have to pay for it instead of having my friends or family listen to me I know that's not a burden or expectation they have to bear, but I do get a bit jealous when they have significant others they can talk to about their feelings and I have to pay someone to listen to mine. It's actually furthering my attachment issues. Due to my attachment traumas, I avoid dating like it's COVID-19. 
I am unable to form intimate romantic relationships and at the same time unable to consistently see a therapist to overcome it because I am bitter about having to pay them. I don't even know if I want to date or if I just want someone to hear me. Bob, what do you think? Wow. This is a lot. Yeah. This is intense. Honest to God, the thing that stands out is not the bitterness. It's the pain. Yeah. Yeah, that whoever wrote this is in a lot of pain. And unfortunately, telling themselves stories about what is therapy. But I every, I hear these stories, and here's what I think, person. I think that this is your mind's way of keeping you from having connection. Oh, I shouldn't have to pay them, grr, 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 right? I think that's actually a safe place to stay because ultimately where you land is alone. And alone has perhaps become your safe place. And you both crave the safety and hate it, the aloneness all at once. It's like a jail cell that, no, that's a bad metaphor. I'm not going to use that. Never mind. Take it back. It's, I, I think though that this is, this is a manifestation of your need for safety and the tremendous pain that you're in. And by the way, everybody needs safety. You need safety. The idea is though that safety is what I do. Uh, my strategy for safety is to stay alone as opposed to have safety in connection with the other. Life has taught you that you've learned it for a darn good reason. Whatever happened to you is what happened to you and has taught you, nope, don't trust them motherfuckers. Sorry for swearing. Don't trust other people. They're, um, they're uh, the source of pain, right? And so you find yourself in the safe, grumbly place. Right. So I don't know. I, I you know, I kind of hope you give it a shot. I hope that you talk about your irritations about paying. I don't think I, I, I don't, I don't agree with your logic. There was something you said there that I found myself shaking my head. What was, what was it? It was something in the middle. Uh, I know that uh, that's not a burden or expectation that my friends and family have to bear. Was that it? No, it's the next thing. Uh, I do get a bit jealous when my significant other, when they have significant others, they can talk to you about their feelings and I have to pay someone to listen to mine. And what was the next part? It's actually furthering my attachment issues. Um, unable, un, unable to form intimate romantic relationships. That, that was it. Oh. Unable. No, not true. Not true. You're, it's fraught. It's definitely fraught, right? All the terrors are going to come forth. If you let somebody close to you, yep, you can bet your butt it's going to get hard. You're going to get angry. It's going to get scary. I don't know what's going to happen, right? But um, if you find somebody that's good, that's trained, you have a shot at working with that. And it might be that therapy is the place to start so that your friends and family can become safer connections. Now, I don't know if those folks are safe people. They may not be. I get it. Right. But they may be. And that, um, and, and um, it might be that that question needs further, further investigation. Like, mm, I don't know what it's like to be safe with somebody. So how the hell do I know if somebody is safe? Right. So you you might start with therapy and use, as my first therapist said to me, Bob, the kind of intimacy you have with me, now go find it out there. And I'm like, I got to be this open with other people. And she's like, well, yeah, that's the point. It isn't to sit here with me. It's to create connection in your world, in the world that you're moving to. Uh, so um, that's my two cents. Yeah. Uh Beautiful. The only thing I would tiny little add to that Mm -hmm. is the notion that we all need to 
have very close relationships in our lives. Mm -hmm. And if you can only get it from a therapist, then do it because, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's not ideal. You're paying for it. I, I guess, I mean, the other thing I'll add is that people pay Bob and I as well, but that doesn't diminish the intensity and the meaningfulness and the realness of the relationship. So uh, it's it's not as if we are like, well, you know, put money in the meter or else you can't talk to, you know, right. it, it's a it's a formality that has to happen because it's our job. But but, you know, once we're there, we're there and their relationship can be as deep as any other relationship in our life. You know, Did I ever tell you my, my, oh, I just interrupted. It's no, just no, me. go ahead, please. My theory about my fee is the following. You're not paying me for a session. You're giving me money so I don't have to do something else for a living because I want to sit here with you. Ah. That's the truth, guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so when I say that we all need closeness, this actually isn't necessarily directed mm-hmm. towards you, anonymous upper patron. It's towards people in general because I've been having some conversations with a lot of people along these lines that I find that people... There's a lot of people who are alone for the most part. They might have friends and they might have people that they socialize with, but they are, how do I, so what am I saying here? Um, There are some configurations in life that I think are in line with the way we evolved to have people close to us. Uh, Being married and living with that person is and the relationship is good enough is one of those configurations. It's not ideal because you're relying on one person, which isn't ideal, but it's close enough to what, you know, the original uh, humans not that long ago, uh, you know, the same species as us, 100,000 years ago, they grew up and lived with and slept with about 50 to 150 people from the day they were born until the day they died. And they ran into strangers every once in a while. And they certainly did not have their own cave to live in. And they certainly did not forage and hunt and, you know, do things by themselves. (laughs) Humans are not meant to live alone and live life alone and do things alone. And increasingly, it's getting that way. Why? Well, because it's easier and There are a lot of relationally traumatized people, a lot of people that are really sad. And to broaden it, if you want to look at the macro, the reason why this is happening is because our society in the Western world is heavily focused on economy, economy, Mm -hmm. economy. Mm -hmm. And the economy does not care about you being traumatized. The economy does not care about your attachment needs being met. The only thing the economy cares about is you making money and spending money. And guess what? Having a home for every single person and a car for every single person and a vacuum cleaner for every single person and an internet connection for every single person is exactly what capitalism wants for you. Uh, They do not want you to share. They do not want you to live with other people. They want you to buy your own place and do everything individually and have your own Amazon account and your own Netflix account and everything. And so uh, now they don't wake up in the morning and want to harm you. It's just oriented towards that. It, you know, 
the investors don't get any money from focusing on your attachment needs. They, it's just how things are. You know, no, no one's being malicious. It's just how the system is set up. And so you have to exert pressure against what the society is doing to you. And, and what I see a lot of people doing is they grew up with trauma and they head into the dating world or relationship world bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and all the hopes and dreams. They have some problems, as everyone does, but because of their relational traumas growing up, it compounds and it gets worse and it gets overwhelming and it gets very hard. And as someone who doesn't have those relational traumas for myself, I come from a very privileged place to be able to say this, but Bob does not, and he would agree with me. <laughs> he did the work. you know. He could have crawled into a hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably wanted to and did temporarily at times, yes. but, but he didn't because he recognized his own human needs, and he persevered through a lot of difficulty. Would it have been easier for Bob to give up years ago, even with Colleen? Yeah, in a certain way. In the moment, it's easier. It's less humiliating. It's less... It's expensive for couples therapy, I suppose. Um, <laughs> Capitalism. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely not what humans are made for. And I, yeah. I, I, I have so many, I hear so many stories about people who live alone mm-hmm. and have given up on dating. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying dating is the only answer. Certainly, uh, any sort of closeness is possible, but... Given the way our Western society is oriented, it is very difficult to establish close relationships unless you're in their family mm-hmm. and living with them. Mm-hmm. So unless you're prepared to, to move in with your best friends or move in with your brother or move in with your parents or something, a significant other is one of the only paths to not being alone anymore because they live with you and you are expected to do things together. In our society, we don't expect friends to spend all that time with each other. We don't expect uh, siblings to spend. They can and they should. We evolved to be that way. So do what you got to do, you know, and please. But the point is, is that there's a lot of people suffering and a lot of people are saying, but it's too hard. And I'm saying, and again, I'm saying this from a place of privilege because I don't have to deal with the barriers that Mm -hmm. a lot of people do psychologically. Mm -hmm. But there is almost no way to live a happy, fulfilling, stable life unless you have every day, 24-7 attachment figures that you are with, that you occasionally hate and they occasionally hate you. (laughs) And... They bother you because they don't clean the bathroom the way you want to clean the bathroom and they snore at night and keep you up. Okay, all the annoyances and all the ups and downs of relationships, but we we were made to be physically at least viewing these other humans and hearing them walk around and and sitting next to them and checking in with them and Uh seeing their lives and them seeing your life, Mm -hmm. them knowing who you are, them smelling your farts and you smelling their farts. Like we evolved (laughs) to overlap and be messy with each other. Mm -hmm. And there's, I I, am so sad for people Mm. like this person that's saying, it's just like, 
they're alone. They are jealous of their friends and family who have significant others. And they're like, okay, fine, I'll go to therapy. But God damn it, I, I have to pay for this. You know, other people have people in their lives. I have no one except for this person that I have to pay. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I get that. But if this is the road yeah, right. to getting there, then this is the road. And whatever bitterness or humiliation or bad narrative you can have about the situation is far, far, far smaller than the overwhelming benefit of the road, the long-term road of you living with people, whether yeah. they're you know, significant others or family members or friends or whomever. You know, dedicate yourself to that. You know, I see a lot of people will have these other paths in lives where they'll say like, well, I feel like crap. I'm emotionally dysregulated and I feel like I need to change my job or something Mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. And then when I ask them about their life, they're like, oh, I live alone. And yeah, I have a dog and a cat. Um, But yeah, I've basically lived alone for 15 years. And I have friends that I see, you know, sometimes I'm like, I, you know, that's going to be hard to live happily. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And as someone who is on the slight avoidance side of things in terms of attachment style, (laughs) I used to think, well, I can live on my own. And I did live on my own for a Mm -hmm. long time and convinced myself that, you know, I can do this. I don't need people. I'm fine. I have come to realize after living with my wife for a long time mm-hmm. that I wasn't, uh, to put it in a clinical term, I wasn't optimal during that time, emotionally speaking. Mm-hmm. I was suboptimal. I was tricking myself mm-hmm. into thinking that I was optimal. But when I think about the contrast, it's mm-hmm. very different. And so I know it's hard, yeah. but Bob, you know, coming from someone who has a, a childhood of relational traumas that, and the temptation to go down the road of isolation to mm-hmm. make it easier, mm-hmm. what can you tell people like this? Well, first off, that was inspired. I enjoyed that whole thing. I enjoyed the part where you're talking about economy and capitalism and its impact on um or um anyways all that that whole thing i won't, I won't summarize um and actually as i was listening to you i realized that there was something happening in my life when i was single that was um essential to my well-being and welfare and that is i adopted two families and oh, right. I, I spent half my week living in my house with in my one bedroom where I shared with other people that I didn't know. And the other half of my week I spent um, on Michael and Beth's couch. And the Jaworski's couch. And the Terry and Jay's. Yeah, I slept on their floor and in their uh, shed in the back. And I spent one night a week at your house. Oh, right. Yeah, we used to cook pizza late night. <laughs> um, and I, you, you guys are my family. Right. right. My 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 bio family is all on the East Coast and I live on the West Coast. And um my my family of choice is here. You and and our good friends and um 
uh, I think that the person who wrote in here, they don't have that good fortune. But I, I kind of made myself. But um, how? So because the point is, is that you yeah. know, for me, the complications weren't such that because because you know, back then that we were in our twenties and right. Yeah, I was with you. Yeah, twice a week for ten hours a day, and then yeah. another two times a week I was with you at Mike and Beth's playing cards and watching right Sonic's games and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. And. For me, it was there. You know, didn't have complications. That there weren't triggers for me to no uh, to go uh, to to feel hurt and despair and go. Oh. It's easier to isolate. Like at what point, or maybe you're not like that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Oh, I, I understand what you're saying. I think is how you, you have. You're saying, Bob, you have these relational traumas. Are, um, but you're not saying that you're triggered in the way that the person who wrote in is. Well, I would assume that you were triggered, but that you did something to overcome that so that, y- one, you live with Colleen right now. Like, was there ever a point where oh, yeah. you were single and you're just like, I give up, I, I'm i just going to be alone and live alone for the rest of my life? Yeah, there was a time after a breakup where I isolated for a while couple couple years or something um yeah that was before i moved in with the todd yeah um it's, uh yeah there yeah so you could imagine if you went down that road and yeah didn't have a way out of it you'd right. still be there and you'd be even more bitter about things and more I, yes i more can despair. totally yeah there is that possibility i'm fortunate that my life didn't turn that direction. But so uh, what, how did you overcome the fears of being disappointed and the, the hurts that would occasionally happen and trigger those, those past traumas in you? Well, I think my, my, my behavior in my relationships is focused. Okay. In this, I'm preoccupied. I don't, I pay attention to what's going on with the other person. Am I making myself a pest here? Am I, adding something to the equation here i i would work to make myself um useful or wanted um but i i wasn't hmm, i don't think i'm answering your question i'm i'm not answering your question am i well well i think you are i i think what you're saying is your defensive structure isn't such that you really contemplate complete isolation when you're uh, triggered you you uh, you lean towards others to yes. uh, for help yes um, yes that's 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 what i mean to say and i might be different from the person who wrote in in that regard right. and me <laughs> yeah uh because uh when push comes to shove for me it's like yeah you know people are fine but I, I don't really need them that much i'm mm-hmm. fine i can do i can do all my projects by myself and mm-hmm. that'll, that'll be fine mm-hmm. um yeah. Okay. Well, uh, but this was pretty thorough, and uh, we covered a lot of ground with this, this yeah. email. Let's take a break, and we get good, back. Good luck. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Let us know, and we'll answer more emails. What do you say after the break, Bob? I say we. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, this episode or this. Uh, Emails from anonymous patron from Germany. They write, You and Bob have talked about things one can do when in crisis. 
I have been diagnosed with bipolar 2 and PTSD, and I have a strong feeling I have borderline personality disorder. My problem is that when I am, a, I am in a state of crisis, I can't bring myself to, to do anything to make myself feel better because I don't feel like I deserve it. Do you have any advice for me? Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I would just use DBT material for that's what leaps to mind. So when I think about crisis, I don't think about making myself feel better. I think about surviving and avoiding making it worse. Crisis survival is necessary if you're going to put your life back together. So if you're falling into crisis, let's just help you get through it. Let's not try to make it better. It's 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 bad now. Okay, so be it. It's bad now. And maybe what I got to do is I just got to get through today. I just got to get through the next week. I just got to get through this. I just got to get through the next hour, right? What am I going to do then? And to me, it's nuts and bolts stuff. It's like stuff you probably already do that you don't label as skillful. Like, for instance, you might distract by watching a show or calling a friend or um, jerking off or whatever, right? <laughs> so so what you're doing is it's just to kind of get by, but it isn't. none of it's going to make life better. And if you get any benefit from it, it's going to be short and temporary. And that's still okay. That's, if that's, that's okay. It's okay to survive. And that's not where you can, you can't live there. You can't thrive there. So crises tend to be, mm, well, crises tend to be short-lived. Depressions can be very long, right? And in which case you can't just use crisis survival skills. You can't just like get through the day and hope to build a life worth living. You can't do that, right? But if it's a crisis, and at least the way I'm, my brain is defining crisis, it, it will, it, the dust will settle at some point. It might take days, uh, it might take hours, it might take days, it might take a couple weeks. It probably won't take that long for the crisis to abate, in which case at that point, that's when you use skills to make a life worth living, but crisis is about survival, man. Right. Yeah, it's really hard. You know. Oh yeah. You'll have these um, suggestions on the internet or in therapy, and it always sounds good. Mindfulness, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And good. then you actually live with what this person is saying: bipolar, PTSD, and borderline. Yeah. And you're like, okay, <laughs> I am trying to push back on a tidal wave with like a table or something. Uh, it's, it just isn't going to work. It, yeah. It's overwhelming, the, the negative feelings and the, the suffering and the mm -hmm. triggering. Mm -hmm. And so the long term is to heal, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, PTSD, borderline, these are healable conditions with long-term therapy. Evidence shows that. Mm -hmm. So you deserve to heal from that. And then you don't have to be in a state of crisis as often. Mm -hmm. But when you ask this question, anonymous patron from Germany, he's saying, you know, I, I want to do things to make myself feel better, but I don't feel like I deserve it. And it's easy to say, okay, well, then just change that. Like, don't, oh, yeah. don't, you know, you just understand you deserve, of course you deserve it. But the fact that you're framing it that way, you know, cognitively, that you deserve it. But in the moment, and maybe deep down, you really don't feel like you deserve it. Right. And that's where long-term healing relational therapy comes in because through that long-term therapy relationship, the therapist demonstrates to you by experience that you deserve it. And mm -hmm. then over time, your body is convinced mm -hmm. that you deserve all sorts of things. 
so to cognitively just tell yourself that you deserve it is mm-hmm. potentially only going to go so far. Or feel really invalidating. Yeah. yeah. The other thing uh, is that you want to involve other people. So mm-hmm. to sit there and say, I'm suffering, I need to u- utilize all my individual skills mm-hmm. is potentially missing out on a lot of um, positives of involving others of just, you know, and it's hard to know if, if you have this available to you, but people you can talk to just be like, um, well, Bob, in your DBT classes, do you allow people to form alliances with each other? Oh yeah. 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 I think that people in class often understand one another in a way that people don't feel understood in their, you know, their communities because they, everybody's chewed some of the same dirt. So, yeah, we always say to people, look, we don't want anything happening between us that's going to interfere with our main goal together, which is to learn and practice skills. But if you want to hang out, go for it. Yeah. If that helps. And I always, yeah. beyond that, of uh, friendship and hanging yeah. out is like, is like, I'm in a crisis right now. Yeah. Can, can you just listen to me for 45 minutes? Right. Um, that has a tremendous stabilizing effect. Right. For me, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have people to talk to when I'm flipping out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm flipping out, when I flip out and I'm by myself, it just stays, you know? I guess over time it uh, kind of goes away, but I I really need to just yell and scream (laughs) and and have someone just kind of stare at me wide-eyed going, oh, my God, he's freaking out. But it's... Uh, the way that humans deal with this sort of thing. And so if you can involve other people, do that. And then I tell myself, well, I don't deserve that too. Right. You know, because chances are that's what the brain is going to do. Right. And so this leads me to my last point, which is that I've, I've actually treated people with this. And mm-hmm. I, and I know people in my personal life who are like this, which is when you're treated like you don't matter, you internalize that voice and yeah. you feel like you just do not matter. And when you're triggered in particular, you believe you don't matter. And it, it, that it's almost, and another angle is I'm being abused as a, as a child growing up and that voice gets internalized. And so not only do you feel like you don't matter, but you also have this voice inside of yourself. That's like, you don't deserve to feel better because yeah. you're a, a piece of crap. Right. And it's this schema of punitiveness, of self-punitiveness that is very common and very self-destructive, and it very much gets in the way of of getting better because mm-hmm. it, you yourself want to get better, but you yourself also believe you don't deserve to get better mm-hmm. and that you deserve to feel bad. Mm-hmm. And that, it's such a catch-22 for people, and mm-hmm. I... I really feel for people when they're in this situation. And I've been there ground level with people and yeah. it is it is not easy to work around that. Nope. Um but that's the reality that you have to t- you have to sort of accept that. It's like, okay, I have this irrational voice that I very much believe most of the time that I don't deserve it and that I do deserve to feel bad about myself mm-hmm. and that I did deserve to be punished when I was growing up and all this mm-hmm. kinds of stuff and and you and you target that the best you can, and you you try to push past it. You try to tell yourself, no, that voice is not. This, that voice is not okay. That voice is not 
mm-hmm. me. That voice was internalized from the outside. The core of me understands that I do deserve it and that I do matter. But it doesn't feel like I matter, mm-hmm. but I know that I do matter. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to push past that. I'm going to try. You know, you do the best you can. Oh, you know what? That brings to mind something. We had a student in class a long time ago who made a video of herself talking to herself when she's in crisis. So this is when I'm talking, I'm going to make a video of me when I'm in my wisdom, when I'm in centered space, and I'm going to tell me, crisis me, here's the deal, right? Hey, you matter. She did a two-minute video so that the next time a crisis hit, she'd hit play on that thing and, and get coaching from someone she trusted. Yeah. And and not only that she trusted, but to see herself embodying so much um, self-empowerment. Yeah, that. Right. You know, because it's one thing when you're at your low point and someone is telling you that you matter, you're just like, well, you're just saying that. Mm -hmm. I I know I don't matter. But to see yourself saying you matter, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, so there's this other, I've been convinced before <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that I I mattered. didn't always think this. I don't right. always think this. It's loud now, but it's not always loud, and it wasn't loud last week. And Yeah. yeah. We yeah. all could benefit from that practice that your yeah. student does in, in that, of just yeah. like um, all sorts of things that right. we vacillate on. Once you get old enough, you, you just see, especially when you journal like me, you just see certain things that just cycle in and out, you know, certain <laughs> certain emotional negative spots that um, I, I had one a couple days ago. Oh, yeah? And in the middle of it, I feel like after 49 years, I've finally gotten to a tipping point where like 51% of me was like, I'm pretty sure that if I just wait a couple days, I'm not going to have this notion, these sort of sentences running through my head right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that right now... <laughs> The things that are running through my head are a result of mood and not of reality. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, that's a good sentence. You know, all my perceptions are skewed right now. Right. And I'm, I've, I've been here before. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sure feels mm-hmm. real, you know. It sure feels actionable, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I did my best, and, and then it, it, it worked out. I mean, I did other things too. I didn't just grin and bear it. You know, there were other things I had to do, but. But telling yourself, wait a couple of days. It's a, it's an encouragement and it's an acknowledgement of what you probably have noticed happens. It takes a couple of days and then you survive it. Yeah. In fact, maybe you do a couple of things to kind of help yourself along the way, but basically all you do is survive it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good right point. On. Yeah, right good on. point. Surviving is valuable. Surviving is worthwhile. And that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.